If you have a Bible still in front of you, turn this time to 1 Peter in the New Testament. If you're using a church Bible, it's page 1218, or in the larger print Bibles, 1888, 1888. 1 Peter chapter 2, and we're going to pick up and read from verse 11 of chapter 2 down to verse 17. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to command those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. This is God's word. There are several different places where the New Testament describes the Christian life as a battle. And this is one of those places. Now, we we may not be used to thinking about Christianity this way. Maybe we just view Christianity as a set of beliefs that we sign up to. Or we may think of Christianity as a relationship with Jesus. And it is both of those things. But the New Testament tells us signing up to those beliefs and beginning a relationship with Jesus lands us in a lifelong battle. And in these verses, Peter tells us a lot about this battle. He tells us five things. The cause of the battle, the front line of the battle, the aim of the battle, what outcome are we hoping for? Then Peter gives us the battle plan. How do we go about this fight? If we're not using sticks and stones, what are our weapons. And finally, Peter tells us about our commander and our comrades in this battle. Who are we fighting for and who fights alongside us? So first of all, what is the cause of this battle? Why are we in it? Peter answers that at the beginning of verse 11. He says, the cause of this battle is that we are special to God And we are strangers to this world. If that sounds familiar to you, it's because we came across this in the very first verse of this letter. In chapter 1, verse 1, Peter calls us God's elect who are also exiles. We're God's chosen people when we've come to Jesus 
And because of that, we don't quite fit in this world that by and large turns its back on God and on our Saviour Jesus Christ. That was in chapter 1, verse 1. Then Peter came back to the idea in verse 17 of chapter 1. He called us foreigners here. That doesn't mean that every Christian is living in a country that's foreign to them. It means every Christian is going to seem a bit like a foreigner. They're going to feel a bit like a foreigner wherever they live. Even in the place they were born. Even in the place they've lived all their life. And here, again in chapter 2, verse 11, Peter comes back to focus on this once more. In the NIV translation, verse 11 begins with the words, Dear friends, literally the text says, Beloved. And in this context, I don't think Peter is emphasizing the fact that he loves them. I'm sure he does, even though he hasn't met all of them. But I think Peter is emphasizing that God loves these people. In chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, Peter has been highlighting that, and he's been underlining that in red pen. He has told these Christians they're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, that they're God's special possession. They're the people of God. They've received God's mercy. And now he sums all of that up in the word beloved. He says to them, brothers and sisters in Christ, you are special to God. And then Peter says, now let me remind you, because you are special to God, you are also, verse 11, foreigners and exiles. You're strangers to this world. Now that does not mean everything is going to baffle us in this world. It doesn't mean we're always going to be miserable in this world. Or that there's nothing at all for us to enjoy. We know that's not true. There are plenty of good things. Plenty of things for us to learn and benefit from. And enjoy and get involved in. So then in what way are we foreigners and exiles? Well, simply in the sense that we have experienced God's love and we want to live for him, not for ourselves. That makes us weird in the eyes of many, many people. Because God's love means nothing at all to them. And so the way you and I live makes no sense at all to them. Listen to what one preacher called Mark Dever says our culture thinks our Christianity is strange because we give allegiance to someone they do not know your new life says to your non-Christian friends there is a different way to live people do not like that and so you the Christian appear strange Christians are considered strange in this world because we live in reverent fear of God rather than in conformity to the world. In that sense, we live in two worlds at once. The new world has begun for us because God has given us a new birth. 
On the other hand, we continue to live within the old world, which is the only world non-Christians see. So our actions and attitudes, our comments and commitments seem strange, even bizarre to them, like someone talking into the air or pulling out a chair for a guest who isn't there. Maybe some of us know what he's talking about. We've experienced that. People think we're strange, but Peter is going to go on to tell us sometimes it gets worse than that. Sometimes people don't just think we're strange, they think we're bad. In verse 12, he says, people will accuse us of doing wrong, even when we haven't done anything wrong. If you keep up with the news, you'll be aware this is just as current today as it was when Peter first wrote this letter. Those who give their allegiance to Jesus and seek to follow the Bible's teaching, they are often seen as strange, and sometimes they are seen as bad. Think of just one example out of many that we could think about, the area of sex. There was a time when living according to the Bible's teaching on sex made you moral. And living in any other way was seen as being immoral. But now that whole situation has flipped. If a Christian dares to say God has set boundaries for sex and it's for our good to stay within those boundaries, if you say that, people today will call you immoral. How dare you suggest the way someone else is living might be inappropriate? How dare you say that what they want to do might not be the right thing to do? In fact, never mind saying that. How dare you even believe that? Today, simply living by the Bible's standards can get you accused of doing wrong. That just illustrates the fact that our commitment to God has landed us in a battle. That's the way it was for the first readers of this letter, and we shouldn't be shocked if it's that way for us too. As Christians, we're not looking for a fight, but we find ourselves in one. Simply because we have experienced God's love and we're seeking to live for him. That's the cause of our battle. But just in case you and I start feeling a bit puffed up or a bit self-righteous about how good we are in the face of everyone else, Peter immediately reminds us where the front line of this battle is. It's in our own hearts. Look again at verse 11. I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Abstain from means turn away from or keep away from. Back in chapter 2, verse 1, Peter told us to rid ourselves of sin. Now, Peter would not need to say those things unless sin had an attraction for us. And it does. Yes, as Christians, we are new creations in Christ. We've been given new birth into a new life. We're no longer slaves to sin, 
But sin can still seem appealing to us. There are times when what we want is not what God wants. So when we talk about being in a battle, the biggest fight is always in our own heart. Will we trust the God who loves us? Will we trust him enough to obey him? Or will we make our own desires the deciding factor in how we live? In this passage, Peter's main focus is the battle we're involved in because we obey God. But here in verse 11, he says this interior fight is always the first one. The battle to obey God in the first place. Every day, maybe a dozen times a day, you and I will be faced with a decision. And whatever that decision is, our own sinful desires will wage war on our soul. We will want to be selfish or deceitful. Or we'll want to spew out bitter words at someone. Or we'll want to do what everyone else is doing so we can just fit in. And in that moment, whatever the temptation is, you and I have to pause... And remind ourselves we are beloved children of a holy God. That's who we are. And then we have to choose to abstain from our sinful desires and do what a beloved child of God ought to do. So we're in a battle simply because we belong to God. And that makes us strange. The front line of this battle is in our own hearts. But then in verse 12, Peter explains the aim of this battle. The aim is changed lives that give glory to God. Look at verse 12. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. In the next verses, Peter will say more about the good life and good deeds that he mentions here. But the thing to notice here at this point is the outcome we're looking for in all this. We know we're going to seem strange to people. They may even accuse us of being bad. But our goal is to live among those people in such a way that they glorify God on the day he visits us. That means the day Jesus returns to this earth. It's talking about the judgment day. We want our lives in this world to produce men and women who will be part of God's people on that day. To be part of the great multitude round God's throne. Men, women and children who cry out, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. As Christians, our aim in this world is not to get even. It's not to put people down. It's not to put people in their place. Our aim is to get glory for our God. And to do that by living lives that attract people to our God. 
So yes, we are foreigners and exiles. This world may often be hostile towards us, but we will not take a hostile stance. We will live good lives among those who are hostile to us. And we'll do that praying that our good lives will lead our enemies to the God who so loved this world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. As Christians, we fight for changed lives that give glory to our God. And here's how we fight. Here's the battle plan. A life of respect and good deeds. Peter has already said that in verse 12. That verse makes it clear we're not to live our lives in isolation from the world around us. Back in the Middle Ages, many people thought that the ideal Christian life was lived in a monastery. Abandon the world to go wherever it's going. We'll stay in our monastery and be holy together. Now I realize many monasteries did help the communities around them. But the core idea was the ideal Christian life is a life of isolation from the world around us. And yet, that is not what the New Testament actually teaches us. In verse 12, Peter tells us to live good lives among the pagans. I don't think a monastery on a mountaintop qualifies as being among people. Maybe you can see them from the window with a telescope. But that's not what Peter has in mind. In verse 12, he also says those who accuse us of doing wrong are to see our good deeds. That word see has the sense of pay close attention to. If that's going to happen, we need to be around people. Even those who are hostile to us. They may treat us like we're exiles. But we are not going to put ourselves into voluntary exile by avoiding them. Our attitude to society is to be positive. It's to be outgoing. One writer puts it like this. Refusal to take part in a sinful way of life does not mean the same thing as withdrawal from the world. Rather, Christians are to do good in the world and in the particular social settings in which they're placed. Let's think about the first part of that. We are to refuse to participate in the sin. Peter said that in verse 11. And that may mean we have to distance ourselves from certain situations. Maybe we'll need to distance ourselves from certain people we used to sin with. Abstaining from sin may involve abstaining from people and places that are going to draw us right back into sin. We have to take that seriously. If you're an alcoholic, for example, you cannot spend your time where you used to spend it, with the people you used to spend it with. But once we've taken those things into account, 
Once we've put in place any exceptions we need to put in place, we still have to deal with Peter's point here. People need to know us. Society may be hostile to us, but our attitude to society needs to be positive and outgoing. And it needs to be positive and outgoing so that they may see our good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. We ought to be the kindest, most helpful people that our neighbours know. We ought to be the kindest, most helpful students that our teachers know. The kindest, most helpful employees and family members. In verses 13 to 15, Peter gives us more detail about these good deeds that people need to see. He says, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to command those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Just to give us a little bit of context for what Peter's saying, the emperor at this time was the Roman Emperor Nero. Now, if you know anything at all about history, it's a bit of an understatement to say Nero wasn't all that sympathetic towards Christianity. And in fact, at the end of this letter, Peter himself will refer to Rome as Babylon. In the Old Testament times, Babylon was the world power that came and crushed Israel. Peter is calling Rome the new Babylon. So Peter doesn't have some kind of naive, rosy view about Rome's stance towards Christians. It's helpful for us to know that, because otherwise when Peter calls us in verse 13 to submit to every human authority, including the emperor... We might think Peter is a bit naive. But look what Peter doesn't say. He doesn't say, submit to every human authority because they're all great. He says, submit to them for the Lord's sake. That is very significant. It tells us this is a choice you and I have to make. Whatever we might think of the government... Whatever we might think of their policies, we are to submit to them for the Lord's sake. This is part of the battle plan he has given us. We are not to be anti-authority people. We are to be good citizens who respect our government. Does that mean we obey absolutely whatever they tell us? No. Peter himself didn't do that. If you read chapters 4 and 5 in the book of Acts, you'll find the Jewish authorities in Jerusalem telling Peter not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. What did Peter do? Well, he respectfully said, sorry, God is my ultimate authority. In this case, I will obey him rather than you. And that obedience to God landed Peter in jail. So here in our passage, when Peter says, submit to every human authority, we know that he means 
Submit, accept when that human authority is commanding you to sin. So what does that mean? It means if you and I don't like the tax laws or the speed limits or the parking regulations or the copyright requirements or the health and safety rules or the Brexit deal, if we don't like those things, we submit ourselves to those things for the Lord's sake. So we will prove ourselves to be good citizens. In the hope that ultimately our lives will point others to our good God. In verse 14, Peter brings it a bit closer to home. We're to submit to governors as well. And that brings it right down to the local level. The Emperor Nero sat off somewhere in Rome. But these were the people who carried out his policies on the ground. These are provincial magistrates. We are not to be thorns in the side of those kind of people. We're not to make their job difficult. And notice this is wider than just government. Verse 13 says, submit to every human authority. That includes children submitting to parents, pupils to teachers, employees to employers. If they command us to sin, we have the Bible's permission to disobey them in that instance. And yes, if something is not a command to sin, but we have a disagreement with it, we can voice our disagreement. Of course we can. But even when we have to disobey, even when we feel compelled to disagree, we do it with proper respect. That's what Peter will say in verse 17. So let's pause and ask ourselves a few questions. If my allegiance to Jesus has landed me in a battle, and if God calls me to conduct myself in this battle by living a life of respect and good deeds, am I doing that? How do I speak about other people? How do I speak about my teachers, about my boss, about my parents? How do I speak about the government? about my neighbor? How do I speak about the referee at the football? Are they all flaming idiots, as far as I'm concerned? Do I despise them in the way I speak about them? Like they're dirt in the bottom of my shoe? How do I speak to them? I speak to them like I'm talking to an imbecile? Like I'm superior and they ought to fall in line behind me? Treating people with respect doesn't mean we have to agree with them. It doesn't mean we have to vote for them. It doesn't mean I have to be all sickly sweet, saying what a great and wonderful job they're doing. But for God's sake, literally for God's sake, I do have to treat them as a fellow human being made in the image of God. I do have to make their job easier instead of making it harder. 
And I do all of that with the aim that someone who sees the way I conduct myself will just maybe come to worship my Saviour Jesus Christ. Could the way that you treat a traffic warden result in someone turning to Jesus or away from Jesus? Could it? Well, don't rule it out. At school, on parents' evening, could the way you speak to those teachers result in someone turning to Jesus or away from Jesus? Don't rule it out. What about the way you speak to people who serve you in a restaurant? The way we speak to people who help us in the shop? I read not long ago about a young man who had turned away from Jesus. And the reason he gave was this. He said, my dad called himself a Christian. But he made it a point of pride never to stick to the speed limit. Now, of course, you and I hear that. And the way we want to react is by saying, that's no good reason to reject Jesus. That's just an easy excuse for him. Yes, it is. But why would we give people any excuse to reject Jesus? Is it just possible that young man might have been more open to Jesus if his dad behaved like he was under the law instead of above it? Like he respected authority instead of despising it? Verse 15 says, It is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Most people who have a problem with Christianity know next to nothing about Christianity. They haven't read the Bible. They haven't been to a Bible-believing, Bible-teaching church. They're just going along with something they've heard about Christianity. That it's all about rules, or that it's all about intolerance, or hatred, or some other misrepresentation of what we actually believe. The things they say about us are said out of ignorance. And yes, those people are often speaking foolishly. But our calling is not to be aggressive and angry toward those people. Our calling is to live lives that silence their foolish, ignorant talk about us. Because they see something good in us. Because our respectful way of doing things is striking to them. It stands out. Because it's not the way other people treat them. And maybe it's even striking enough to make them interested in our saviour. And finally, in verses 16 and 17, Peter reminds us about our commander and our comrades, God and his people. Verse 16 says, Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God 
honour the emperor. We saw earlier we are to submit to human authority for the Lord's sake. And Peter repeats that here. The one you and I are serving is not ultimately our parents, our teachers, our boss, our government. It's God himself. He is our commander at the end of the day. We are actually free from human authority. Those human authorities don't own us. They have no ultimate claim over us. We submit to them voluntarily because it's God's will. And God does have an ultimate claim on us. You and I are to avoid evil, not ultimately to please the government or the police. We avoid evil to please our Father in heaven. We show respect, not ultimately to delight our parents or teachers. We do it to delight our holy God. Peter lays that out for us in verse 17. You'll notice there are four parts to the list there in verse 17. At the beginning and end of the list, we have everyone at the beginning and the emperor at the end. We're to show them respect. The NIV uses two different words, respect and honor. But in the original, the word is the same in both places. That is what we owe to those who are outside of God's family. Those who don't belong to Jesus. We owe them respect. And this passage has been insisting that we take that seriously. But here Peter reminds us we do have other higher obligations. Look at the two middle items in verse 17. We respect those outside of God's family, but we love the family of believers. And we fear God himself. We respect our neighbors, and that is a significant obligation. But we love our brothers and sisters in Christ. That is an even higher obligation. The men and women sitting all around you, they are your fellow soldiers in this battle. They are your comrades in this fight to live good lives for God's glory. So don't let yourself become distant from them. Don't turn your back on them. You need them. And they need you. So pray together about this battle we're in together. Last week it was great to see people praying together, both before and after the service. That is a very significant way we can love and minister to one another. It's great to get the prayer points at home and pray for people there. But maybe it's even better to pray with them when you see them here. You don't have to save it all up for the official prayer times. In the Old Testament, the temple was to be a house of prayer. That's what God called it. Last week we heard that we are a living temple of God. So why not fill our times together with prayer? That is one way to love the family of believers. 
Then what about the emperor, or in our case, the government? Well, we respect Theresa May and her cabinet. And we will respect whoever follows her in 10 Downing Street, whatever party they're from. We respect the government, but we fear God. We give him a reverence that's on a whole other level. He made us. He sent his only son to redeem us from our sin. He has shown us unfathomable mercy. He loves us with an everlasting love. He is our true king. We belong to him and we live to do his will. We're going to close our time together by telling him that as we sing his praises together. Here is love vast as the ocean.